Hi, I'm Helen and this is Why Mums Don't Jump. Busting taboos about leaks and lumps after childbirth. All the stuff that happens to your pelvic floor that no one ever talks about. Incontinence, prolapse, pelvic pain, problems that affect millions of women. One in three. I'm one of them. I have a prolapse. My pelvic organs fell out of place after the birth of my second child. And if you had told me back then that I would be speaking about this stuff out loud, I would have told you to give your head a wobble. Hi, it's the final episode of season three. I can't believe I'm saying it. And what a season it's been. Inspiring stories from more brave women, incredible advice on things like menopause, on surgery, on running. Tons of food for thought around why the taboo around pelvic floor problems exists in the first place, how humour can help, why it's a feminist issue. And of course, that time I took a recording device to a pessary appointment. Yes, I did. Um, and it's almost like the more we talk about it, the more... I feel like there is to say. So I am planning to return after a break and there are some exciting things happening in the meantime. So make sure you find me on social media if you haven't already. Today's episode is sponsored by Modibody, the go-to brand for any of life's leaks. There's a range of products, not just for periods, but for bladder leaks, postpartum bleeding and leaky boobs, as well as reusable nappies for babies, helping to support you through different stages of life. And the new Ultra range for incontinence is the most absorbent yet. It can hold 250 milliliters of liquid, no pads, no disposables, just undies. So Modibody sent me a pair and they are lovely to look at and they're very, very soft. And as you know, I mean, I've been using Modibody for three years now for periods and I haven't looked back. So if you fancy trying them, you can use the code WMDJ15 for 15% off your first order, excluding sale items, bundles, gift cards and maxi 24 hours. Thanks to Modibody for all your support. Episode 10 then. It's one I've been thinking about for a while now. You know how... I don't know if this makes sense, but you know how everyone, you know how lots of people say, if men had pelvic floor problems, it would have been sorted by now. And I used to think, yeah, well, it's easy to say that, but is it really fair? And what do we mean by that exactly? And then over the last couple of years, I started hearing more about the gender health gap. And it's a bit like something sort of clicked so I wanted to explore it and it's fascinating to me this and I think it's important if we want things to change, if we want to end the stigma, make it easier for women to advocate for themselves, to get the treatment they deserve. There's obviously a UK focus to this, but it's relevant everywhere. Sarah Graham is a freelance health journalist. She is the founder of the Hysterical Women blog, which looks at inequalities in women's health. And she's writing a book on the gender health gap, which is due out in 2023. She's, she's also a new mum. So I'm especially grateful to her for finding the time to answer all my questions the other day. Starting with, what exactly do we mean when we talk about the gender health gap? So I guess in, in kind of the simplest terms, the gender health gap is a way of looking at and talking about the the health inequalities that exist between men and women. And obviously, you know, like like with a lot of these things, there are other factors that come into that. So class and race and sexuality, age, all, all of these kind of things also have an impact. But essentially, it's looking at the way that men and women are treated differently by um, healthcare professionals, by the sort of the, the medical community, and the various different inequalities in terms of 
the knowledge that we have, the, the research that exists when it comes to various different health conditions. So give me some examples of where we might see the gender health gap, because like this is one of those things where until I heard the expression, I hadn't really considered how that might apply to pelvic floor problems for women after childbirth. And when after I did hear it, I was like, aha, now I see, now I see what's going on here. So give me some examples of where the gender health gap can be evidence. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there are loads of loads of different examples. And what kind of got me interested in this is that I was writing about lots and lots of different health conditions and, you know, hadn't necessarily kind of connected the dots, like you say, but actually started seeing patterns coming up so I guess the, the kind of big picture is, you know, although we know that women have a longer life expectancy than men, they actually spend more of their lives in sort of ill health. Um, and there are loads and loads of different examples. So women not being taken seriously when they're in pain, you know, being offered antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication instead of pain relief. It's the fact that women are more likely to than men to die of a heart attack because the care that they receive isn't as good. They're more likely to be misdiagnosed. You know, in the context of your work, it's things like that, that sort of attitude that childbirth injuries are just kind of part and parcel of being a mum, you know, that actually it's, it's something we should just accept and put up with and, and suck it up rather than a medical problem that has solutions. Um, so I think there are, there are loads of different examples and where I became really interested in this in my work was, you know, the fact that it's it's not just stuff to do with wombs and vaginas. It, it happens across everything, you know, heart attack care, mental health care. You see it in the menopause, you know, you see it in things like endometriosis and, and PCOS. So it really it really does kind of span the whole of healthcare in lots and lots of different ways, some more obvious than others. Um, you know, and the more I talk about it, the more I kind of hear from women who, you know, sometimes it's just the really sort of insidious things that you just think nothing of at the time. But like a GP that's a little bit dismissive when you go to them with something that actually is having quite a big impact on your life and they, they seem to not take it very seriously, you know, all the way through to the much, much bigger things like like women being more likely to die from a heart attack, you know, like women not getting the care that they need for really, you know, serious, potentially life-threatening issues. Um, so yeah, so it, it, it's massive. And once you kind of, I think once you're aware of it, once you start talking about it and looking for it, you see it everywhere. That's certainly has been the case for me. That's, that's exactly it. Before I had heard that expression, I, I knew there was something going on with pelvic floor stuff. I was like, why aren't people getting, you know, good enough care? Why are people sort of on these long waiting lists? Why are we not even going to the doctors about it? Well, maybe it's maybe that's on us because we don't talk about it. Maybe that's kind of our fault. And I sort of internalised this idea of like, well, yeah, it is normal when you have a baby. We should just put up with it and get on with it. And it's only really in the last couple of years that I've been thinking like, hang on, no, that's that's not how it should be. That's not how it is. And, you know, the way you described, um, you know, people's pain being dismissed, people going to the GP, and even if it's just slightly that attitude of indifference, that's exactly what it is. And all of that adds up, doesn't it, to something that um, really says everything about how women's quality of life is viewed often by, not all, of course not all, but some medical professionals. It's like, what is an acceptable quality of life for us to be living and where should people be helping us to get to 
it's a hard question to answer in a way. Absolutely. And I think, you know, like you say, a lot of it is internal, you know, even, you know, even before you go to the GP, there are, there's such a sort of stigma and taboo around these issues that I think women have really internalized these messages that it's not something we talk about. It's not something that that you need to trouble the doctor with you know it's something that you just have to deal with on your own and and put up with so you know I think it's not entirely on on the medical profession professionals themselves you know I think that's where it gets so kind of tricky and so complex is that there are so many different aspects to it from so many different angles and a lot of it does start with us being too embarrassed or too ashamed or you know too traumatized not wanting to kind of put ourselves out there that's almost kind of the first step and so if when you do take that step you then have a dismissive GP that's kind of the second barrier on on that path and so there are all these different barriers that can come up at, at different stages whether that's things like really long waiting lists to see a specialist because the service isn't prioritized there's not enough funding there aren't enough specialists you know there are at kind of every step of the journey there are these barriers whether they're internal or external and you're so right about that that thing of seeing it everywhere as well I just I came across a report the other day and I don't know if you've seen this but um it was from the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists it came out about a month or two ago and it was talking about waiting lists for gynecology and how um over COVID they've gone up by like 60% and you might say well waiting lists across the board have gone up for all specialities but not by as much as they have for gynecology and um the the head of the royal college was making the point in this article that this was about gender and it was about giving women's health law priorities and I was like here's someone who really knows their stuff going this is like the only medical specialism that's unique to women and look what's happened to the waiting list that has gone to the bottom of the pile so there's like something like half a million women on this waiting list for gynecology now and like tens of thousands of them are going to wait for more than a year to get that treatment it's really frustrating to say the least yeah so frustrating and I think you know often it's really easy to get frustrated with GPs because they're the kind of the ones right in front of us they're the ones that we see that kind of act as like the gatekeepers Um, but I think often it is just as frustrating for GPs who don't have services to refer on to or there's a massive waiting list so they have to try and just muddle through you know, and I'm, I, you know, I'm not saying that that's the case for all GPs. I think there are some GP attitudes that I come across that are just appalling. But I think for a lot of GPs, it is really frustrating that they really want to help their patients, but they just can't because these issues go all the way to the top. You know, it's, it's which services commissioners prioritise when it comes to funding. It's which services there's the kind of political will to invest in. Um, so it, it really does go all, all the way to the top and, and trickles right down to, to the patient. Yeah, and then some of that, I guess, is down to, to I think you mentioned, a lack, a lack of research. So the other eye-opening thing for me was um, Caroline Crowder-Perez's book, Invisible Women, and just kind of highlighting the fact that such low investment in research into women's health and partly because women are seen as too complicated to research because of periods, because of hormones. Yeah, our um, hormones research... make everything complicated, right? Yeah, if, like that's exactly why you need to be researching it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, that's something that, that you see a lot with conditions that 
primarily affect women. So, you know, endometriosis is a really good example. It's the one that everyone always talks about. But it's also you see it in things like ME-CFS, which isn't, you know, it's not anything gynae related, chronic fatigue. It's a really complex um, condition, but yeah, it, it's sort of best known for, for the kind of chronic fatigue and various different post-viral symptoms that go with it. it you know, it's it, for some people it can be really debilitating, but because it mostly affects women, most you know, most of the people who are affected are women. The research funding just isn't there. There's so much that we just don't know about it, and. You know, even the guidance that GPs are given to follow has been based on bad evidence. So they, the guidelines on, on ME-CFS treatments were just recently revised to remove a treatment called graded exercise therapy, which had been in the guidelines for a very long time, but which, you know, patients for years have been saying, actually, this does more harm than good. And when they've gone back and they've reviewed it and they've looked at the evidence, they've gone, actually, yeah, this this does seem like it could be harmful. There's no evidence that actually it helps people um, or, you know, or, or that evidence is not good quality enough that we can be recommending this. So stuff like that lack of research, you know, it really does impact on, on patients' lives. Where has all this come from? What What's the history to this gender health gap? Because it feels like we're only, well, I certainly feel like I'm only just waking up to it. But obviously it's been baked into the system from the start, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, like I say, it's it's a really complex problem and it goes back to sort of, you know, thousands and thousands of years of sexism and, and living in a patriarchal society where you have systems that were set up by men, for men, that are run by men, for men. Um, and, you know, so almost kind of as far back as you can even imagine, um, you know, men's bodies have been seen as the default. There have been all these kind of attitudes that still, I think, to some extent exist about women's bodies. Like like you were saying about hormones making us too complicated to study. You know, this this whole idea of hysteria, you know, that women are kind of, just um you know governed by our wombs by our hormones you know that we're irrational and that that you know we we can't be trusted to tell the truth about our own experiences because we you know we might be exaggerating or we might you know we're too led by our emotions rather than being able to sort of objectively report things um so you know i think a lot of it comes from from those attitudes to women uh, you know as a whole and um you know, if you look at things like reproductive rights, obviously, you know, fairly closely linked, actually, to, to postnatal issues. Um, just this idea that women can't be trusted is really kind of inherent in, in the system. At the same time, then you've also, you know, got, as, as, we've, as we've said, this kind of male dominated medical and, and research fields, where the focus has been on men, it's been on men's bodies and conditions that affect men. And so the conditions that mostly affect women are neglected. You know, there isn't as much research. We don't know as much about how how women are affected by gender neutral issues. We don't know as much about the conditions that, that affect women more than men. So you've got kind of a bit of a double whammy, really, of sort of conscious and, and unconscious bias that has existed since forever that you know, I think we've made some progress, but there is still a lot, particularly of the kind of unconscious bias that people don't necessarily realise they have, you know, internalised. 
Um, and then also those those big gaps in, in medical research and knowledge. So it, they, they really kind of go together to make it very difficult for, for women um, in healthcare. Why do you think it does feel like we're suddenly waking up to this? I mean, obviously, some people will have been talking about it for years, but certainly, you know, we're seeing more about, I guess, about menopause, more about endometriosis, like you say, more people are getting a little bit more up in arms about um, getting, demanding the right treatment for these things. Where do you think that's come from? Absolutely. I mean, I I really feel that it has been building over the last few years. Um, and a lot of my work has been following that. Um, and actually, the, the book that I'm writing at the moment is very, is very kind of focused on that sort of real kind of grassroots movement of, you know, ordinary women, ordinary people talking about their experiences, whether that's, you know, podcasters like you or bloggers or writers or, you know, just people with an Instagram account putting posts up about their experiences. I think we've seen a real kind of movement build in the last few years um, around all sorts of different issues. And I think the more that those kind of separate movements, so there's a, you know been a bit of a menopause movement, there's been a bit of a pelvic floor movement, there's been a, a real big endometriosis movement, and, and all these kind of things have sort of come together and people have started, I think, you know, like, like me in my work, putting the dots together and going, oh, okay, so that woman's experience of the menopause is linked to that woman's experience of having a prolapse, which is linked to that woman's experience of having endometriosis. And there are all these sort of patterns that people are starting to notice and go, hang on, like that, this doesn't seem right. You know, a, a few years ago, I started a blog called Hysterical Women, which was very much, you know, based on, on, bringing all of those things together, linking them. And because one of the things that I'd kind of noticed was I was talking to loads of women who had very different health issues, very different, um, you know, conditions or symptoms or, or concerns. But the attitudes they were experiencing and the barriers that they were kind of bumping up against were the same. And so I started Hysterical Women kind of to make the point that that all of these different women were having very similar experiences, regardless of what the health issue was. Um, and what I found most fascinating and quite moving, actually, was the number of women who said to me, oh, my God, I thought this was just me. I thought, yes. I thought it was just me. But, you know, all these women who, like we said, they've internalised this shame and this stigma and they're going you know, uh, my GP had told me so many times that there was nothing wrong with me that I thought I must just be going mad. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really heartbreaking, actually. But I think that what we have seen over the last few years is, is enough of those stories to kind of, to build that momentum and for women to start realising it's not just me, I'm not just losing my mind. These things are all connected and there are lots of complicated reasons behind them. You know, and it's not necessarily that my GP is a misogynist who doesn't want to help, but that there are, there's this massive problem that is blocking so many of us from accessing the care we really deserve. Yeah, you're spot on. And I've noticed exactly the same thing with the podcast and the Instagram, like the, the comments and messages that come back. 99% of them are, I feel, I've felt so alone and now, and now I don't. And just even that helps someone feel 
a lot better. It maybe um, empowers them to go and advocate for themselves, go back to the doctor, go back and get the help because they know that they've that there's a community of people in the same boat. Um, so we are we are sort of waking up to it, and it's it's not just like you say it's sort of grown out of these grassroots voices, perhaps, but now also. Governments are taking note. My eyes nearly popped out of my head last year when I heard the health secretary, then Matt Hancock, talking about um, we have this healthcare uh, system designed by men for men, and that not, we don't know enough about conditions that only affect women. And, to, and like that, I have to say, that was like really reassuring to hear that coming from government and Scotland as well. That I think they're making sort of plans around these things. So. The, kind of, the authorities are waking up to it, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. It very much feels like, you know, all, all the hard work that activists and campaigners have been doing is, is very much putting these issues on the agenda. You know, we've got to a point. I think in some ways we're still very much in that kind of awareness raising stage. But I think we've got to the point now where there are enough voices and those voices are loud enough that they can't be ignored anymore. Right, because that's that's been the problem for thousands of years: is women being ignored and dismissed and told, "Oh no, it's just you, go away." But there are enough of us now saying, "We're not going to shut up. We're not going to go away." That government is having to, has having to kind of take notice, you know. So, I think again with the medical community, we're seeing more and more doctors, midwives, nurses kind of engaging with these issues you know, waking up to, to problems that exist within their industry and, and sort of thinking, are there ways in which I'm complicit in this? Are there things I could do more to challenge my own biases, to, to reflect on my practice? So I think it has been really powerful um, from that perspective. I, uh, you know, I'm very keen to see what will come out of the uh, consultation that the Department of Health put out last year. I think it's it's great that there's lots of stuff that seems to be happening. You know, in, in the last few years, we've had all party parliamentary groups set up to talk about things like the menopause and endometriosis. And we've had reports into vaginal mesh and, you know, all the various different maternity scandals. You know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that seems to be happening. And... Um, I think what I would really like is just to see the government put their money where their mouth is a little bit and say, okay, we've talked about the issues, we've put out all these reports that say, this is what the problem is, this is what women's experiences are, but this is what we're actually going to do about it. And to see some more sort of concrete actions put in place, you know, whether that's committing to invest in research, whether it's sort of training and you know, and, and getting all of the different medical royal colleges involved, you know, looking at things sort of from from the top down, you know, how can we improve services? How can we make sure that commissioners are prioritising women's health? How can we make sure that the GPs on the ground, you know, know everything they need to know, um, you know, to, to help their female patients? There is a there's a long way to go, isn't there? I mean, how how hopeful are you that you know we'll see any sort of significant change in the next? I don't know. Let's say in our lifetime. Let's give it that. <laughs> I think it. I think it's really tricky because it is so deeply ingrained, and it is mm. that there's there's no like one thing that would fix the whole problem. It's not like we can wake up tomorrow and go, okay, we're gonna do X, and that will solve everything. Um, you know, no amount of 
kind of money and research as as and training and as brilliant as all of that stuff is it all has to kind of come together and it's still going to take a really long time to sort of shift the culture and and change attitudes change you know to disseminate disseminate all of that new information and it's going to take a really long time i'm i think i'm fairly hopeful that things are going in the right direction i think already we are seeing small changes and even just things like celebrities like davina mccall going on telly and talking about menopause and hrt is is a really big deal and that empowers women to be able to go to their doctors but also it empowers their gps to go oh maybe i don't know enough about this maybe i've been too sort of taken in by by the research from 20 years ago that kind of exaggerated the risks maybe i need to relook at my own knowledge and my own understanding and and you know see if what i'm telling patients is actually the most up-to-date information so i think you know, I, I do feel hopeful that there are small changes happening at kind of an individual level, but also at a, at a kind of broader social level. Whether we're going to see massive, like huge scale, everything completely overhauled and transformed in our lifetime, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm Let's say to, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> let's be optimistic and say yes. I'm really interested to see what will come out of the government's women's health strategy, because mm-hmm. I think how much they're prepared to actually commit to solid, tangible changes will set the tone and set set the pace for how much change we're likely to see. You know, I really do think it, it has to come from the top. There's only so much. And there, there are brilliant GPs who are campaigning and raising awareness and going on telly talking about these issues. But it has to come from the top if we're going to change the whole system. It can't just rely on individual doctors and patients to do all of the work. And this is why we need to keep up these conversations. Thanks again to Sarah Graham, who's on Instagram. She is at Sarah Graham. That's all one word. Then the number seven and then the word writer at Sarah Graham seven writer. I'll put links to the Hysterical Women blog and some of the things we talked about in the show notes. And that's about it for now. I am still really proud of Why Mums Don't Jump. Thank you for listening, for sharing and for getting involved. Every time you tell someone or subscribe or follow the podcast, every time you review it, you are helping it to reach more women. So please keep doing what you're doing. You can support the podcast at buymeacoffee.com forward slash why mums don't jump and it can be completely anonymous. Thanks to everyone who's done that so far. It means a lot. You can find me on social media at why mums don't jump or online at why mums don't jump.com. Come and say hello. Bye for now.